Thank you, Ryan, for doing the reading. Welcome everyone to our guest bedroom, which is also the laundry folding room. I'm just gonna move this sock because it's gonna totally undermine what I am about to tell you, which is, uh, I would like you all to know that this past week, not one, not two, but three times, I loaded the dishwasher at night, like that same night that we used the dishes, before picking up my phone, before getting my giant bowl of ice cream. I loaded those nice dishes into the dishwasher. One morning, I even unloaded it before I left the house. Amazing, right? Now, how many times do you think I'll do it this coming week? How about the week after that? How about the week after that? If you were to graph my dishwashing discipline, it would look something like a sine curve. And the x-axis would be the days of the year, and y would be the number of minutes it takes a dish to travel to and from the cupboard. You know, like from the cupboard to the table to the sink to the dishwasher and back into the cupboard clean again. Um, because, you know, you have those moments in life when you go, okay, okay, enough is enough. It is not that hard. Let's just commit each night after dinner, before we do anything else, we wash the dishes and start the dishwasher. And you're doing it. And for a while, you're totally rocking it. And then you, you start to slide a little bit. You let one night slip, then another. Then you slide a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more until eventually you can't even remember what color your countertop is because it's so covered in dishes. That goes on for a while until finally you say, okay, enough is enough. And the whole cycle starts all over again. So the graph would look something like this, peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. And actually it would look very similar if you graphed my frequency of exercise, making home-cooked meals, organizing the attic, going on date nights, setting down my phone, preserving and printing photos, going to bed earlier, waking up earlier, basically any kind of routine. They would all follow that up-down pattern and they would all peak and crater at the same time. Because, and is anyone else like this? Here's what happens. Here's what happens to me is that I periodically get these like waves of reform energy. Happens a few times each year. Once in the spring, often maybe in January, like at the start of the new year. And when does the other peak come, the other big reform energy? Right now, the start of fall. I just am like overcome by the urge to get everything back on track. So. I sit before you today, friends, filled with an unbridled optimism. I will do it. I will do all the things. The life I want is just ahead. Like you should see the calendars I made this week. So at these times, I like I doubled down on my plans and my list and renewed commitments to discipline and routine. And, and I just have this sense, uh, this tantalizing sense that I'm so close. If I just stick to them, I'll be good to go. Anyone else having that reform energy right now? Anyone tackle a big project this week? Deep clean the pantry? Um, I wonder what for you, what for you are those wax and wane habits? Exercise, as always, a super common one. Food stuff, time management, all of those are in there for me. I do wonder, though, what my graph of, like, church attendance and faith would look like if I wasn't a pastor. Because, like, I'm here every week, right? Like, you pay me to be here. And, and honestly, it's, like, one of the best parts of my job getting to worship every week, one of the best parts of my life, to have this consistent place and people to come to and be part of. But what if it wasn't my job? Would it be steady like that? 
Or would my faith fluctuate like that sine curve of the dishes? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. It's a well-known verse, and it's one we pastors use a lot to comfort ourselves. Like, if you have a service or a program that hardly anyone shows up to, you go, well, you know, where two or three are gathered. Like, okay, only a few people are on board, but at least we met the Jesus Quorum. Um, but, but the verse is, it's comforting and, and it's encouraging and it sounds kind of unified and harmonious and peaceful. And verses 15 through 17 too, they sound like this good basic recipe for human harmony. Like here's four steps to happy and healthy relationships. And can't you just like, I kind of see it as a flow chart in an employee handbook or something, right? Like, is there, a fo- is there a problem? Do this. And then if X, do this. And if Y, do that. And either way, just stick to the plan down the flow chart and you'll be good to go. And you know what? If you want to use this passage like that as just like some basic healthy communication guidelines, I, th- I think you can. This is some pretty solid advice, right? If something does, someone does something that bothers you, you talk to them about it. Talk to them, not about them. Use I statements, tell them how you feel, and maybe they'll be able to hear you. If that doesn't work, can't resolve it, bring in some outside perspectives, try again. Um, And then at some point, when you've given it a good faith effort, draw a boundary. Let it go. Let them go. I think that's pretty good advice, even 2,000 years later. It's it's practical. Uh, But there are several clues in this passage uh, that there's actually more going on here and, and that that more is, is messier and more interesting than just those basic guidelines. And, and the first clue happens right before this passage because this whole, all of chapter 18 is this speech that Jesus makes and it all starts because the disciples go to Jesus and they want to know which one of us is the greatest. It's just pretty funny, right? It's like, I know you've been telling us to be humble and love and serve, but like, which of us is winning? at all the humility and the love and the service. Is it me? It's me, isn't it? Oh, what barbaric and backwards times it was back then. Who would ever think that way now? And of course, the question behind the question really is, uh, which of us has the most authority? Who's going to be in charge and make the decisions when you aren't here anymore, Jesus? So the prompt for all of this is both a current conflict and like anticipating future conflict. The second clue is what comes right after this passage. You'll hear it next week if you tune in again. Um, But after Jesus says all this stuff about resolving conflict, right after he says, where two or three are gathered, I'll be with you, the very next thing out of Peter's mouth is, but how many times do I have to forgive these people? Like even up to seven times? And Jesus says, actually, 77 times. Wow a lot of times to need forgiveness. The third clue is when we look in these verses themselves at the progression that they outline, because it's like, it's like they expect the conflict to escalate, right? It's like they assume at least some of these attempts to reconcile are going to fail, and that eventually you're going to get to the point where you have to just give up and write some people off as Gentiles and tax collectors. But what does Jesus say elsewhere about Gentiles and tax collectors? They are who you should have over for dinner, right? They are the ones who are most receptive to grace. Oh, and they're going to get into heaven ahead of you. 
So these words, as harmonious and orderly as they sound, they are prompted by conflict. They're followed by a never-ending need for forgiveness. And they describe this escalating and ultimately futile attempt to reconcile, but still insist our salvation is somehow tied up in the salvation of our enemies. All of this to say, verse 20 is not about how Jesus is here when two or three like-minded people gather together in harmony. It is much more like, where two or three people are fighting with each other in my name, I am there among them. And personally, I find that very comforting. Let's look at verse 18 for a minute. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing were Jewish legal terms about how you interpret scripture. And back in Bible times, it was the job of rabbis to help people interpret the Torah to decide what it meant to live in accordance with the words that are written there. So like when it says in the Torah, don't work on the Sabbath, what does that mean exactly? Like what about preparing food? Do you have to do that in advance? Does this apply to everyone, even women, even slaves? Are you allowed to care for your animals? What if an animal gets hurt on the Sabbath? What are you allowed to do then? Different rabbis had different sets of interpretations for different passages. And every now and then a rabbi would come along who seemed to have extra clarity, extra clout. And that rabbi would be said to speak with the authority of heaven. You would travel for miles to hear a rabbi like that. And if that rabbi said that something was forbidden by the Torah, that was called binding. And if they said this is allowed by the Torah, that was called loosing. So... To bind or to loose is to forbid or allow with the indisputable authority of heaven behind you. Now, you can't tell in the English translation, but in the original Greek of this passage, the U's in verses 15 through 17 are singular, but the U's in verse 18 and on are plural. So when someone sins against you, singular, personally, these are the steps that you take to address it. But you all, we all collectively, we are the ones now authorized to do the binding and loosing. Like after Jesus goes, there is no one authority figure who will tell us what we can and can't do. We together, the whole community, we have to decide how we're going to live this stuff out. Do you see how revolutionary that is? Like, do you see what that means? Jesus is saying... The way of God, it's not some shiny ideal up there that we're trying to bit by bit conform ourselves and our communities to match and live up to. The way of God is us, figuring it out together, however we decide to do that. It's, it's committee meetings and reply all emails and group texts and angry shouting across the living room and tense talks in the car and all of the mundane ways that we duke it out daily with the people that we disagree with and try to make decisions with about how we're going to do life together as human beings. That is where Jesus is. That is where grace meets us. Because as it turns out, when it comes to life with other humans, it's actually the hard parts that are the holiest. So you're here, and you're part of worship. Good for you. And if right now you're cresting the top of a sine wave and you're filled with this like 
renewed vigor for routine and discipline. That's awesome. That is not a bad thing at all. I mean, sure, it's kind of futile. It might be probably temporary. Uh, but it's also fun and energizing. And, and dang it, you can get a lot done while you're riding that wave. So live it up, my friend. Live it up. Just remember, okay, that worship is not a wellness program. This is not like taking a vitamin or starting a new exercise regime. This is not an add-on for the peak times when you're really on top of things. If anything, church is for the times when, when we're at the bottom. Church is where we come for forgiveness and for grace. It's where we come to be reminded we don't need to climb any sort of spiritual ladder. Spiritual life is not something out there that we need to work our way towards. Jesus doesn't wait until we have it all figured up, figured out uh, to show up. Uh, Jesus is actually most powerfully present in, in conflict and in all the trivial mess that comes when we try to live in a world with other human beings. And in his name, in his name, the hardest parts become the holiest. So, friends, I guess what I'm trying to say is there is more Jesus on your dirty dishes than in your empty dishwasher. Grace, it's a now thing. May we believe it, receive it, and extend it. Amen.